saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. everybody this is dan david coming back with you and with the pack by pack today i mean sound carl that's right yeah okay i said sound carl the right way this time and andrew who his nickname is andrew and he's new to the pack he's assumed the number two spot now so he'll be replacing carl sometime soon what wait what (laughs) yeah you're out pal i don't know we fixed the glitch our special guest is michael o'hanlon a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute specializing in foreign policy, U.S. defense strategy, use of military force, and the American national security policy. He's been an adjunct professor at Columbia, boo, Georgetown, and George Washington Universities, all fine universities, and a member of International Institute of Strategic Studies and is a member of the Defense Policy Board at the U.S. Department of Defense. Yeah, man. This guy seems to know what's going on behind the scenes when it comes to war. He may have been a spy, which we cannot confirm or deny, but he was a member of the External Advisory Board for the Central Intelligence Agency. So, Carl, he can kill you (laughs) through the screen. With with a drone. He's written dozens of books. As I can see from the video here, he has literally has dozens of books right there and articles, including uh, The Future of Land Warfare in 2015, and uh, Beyond NATO, a new security architecture for Eastern Europe in 2017. Very, very salient topics for today. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, it's great to be with you folks. Thanks for having me. It's great that you can make time. I know you're busy, obviously, with what we have going on, but we have you know many listeners in the business world that want to know whether they can continue to take advantage of average consumers and whether this war is going to interrupt that. What can you what can you tell us about what you saw coming over the last three years as a specialist in this area? What might have surprised you? What didn't surprise you? Yeah, it's a great question. And I maybe even would go further back than three years, because if you'll permit me to go to 2008, that was when Georgia. Under President Bush and Condi Rice, NATO invited Ukraine and the country of Georgia into the NATO alliance, except not really. What they said. Bush and Rice really wanted to invite them in immediately, and it would have taken a a couple of years to actually make it happen, but it would have been a process that was scheduled and fairly well established with other countries that joined NATO after the Cold War ended. And uh, and yet Germany and France and others didn't want to do that. They thought it would be too provocative towards Russia. And with Ukraine being such a, you know, close sibling in a way of Russia, although Ukrainians obviously don't tend to feel a lot of sisterly or brotherly love anymore. No, they do not. Uh, but, and nor should they. But Vladimir Putin, of course, had this silly idea that Ukraine wasn't even really a country. But we had the almost as silly idea that Ukraine was like any other country. And if it could be you know, brought into NATO and it wanted to, fine. And Russia would just have to deal with that. I think that was a terrible mistake. 
back in 2008. Although I'm not blaming us at any moral level for the war, Bush and Rice, like Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright, bless her soul, and others in the previous administration, all thought that expanding NATO, even after the Cold War ended and its purpose sort of dissolved, it was still a good idea for spreading democracy, for consolidating a Europe that was whole and stable and democratic and, and free. And those were noble goals. The problem is they didn't really anticipate what would happen as, as by way of Russian reaction, and especially when we extended that idea to Ukraine which is so close to Russia, which basically has the same you know, city uh, of Kyiv that was sort of central in both those countries' creation myths and their narrative about who they are and where they come from. And so that's the... Yeah, kind of their Bethlehem or Jerusalem. Exactly. And uh, so that, I think that's where the problem arose. And it wasn't just that Putin was going to get angry about this. Mikhail Gorbachev told us to be careful about expanding NATO East. That was a guy who most Russians don't like. And most Americans do like because he ended the Cold War and he, you know, oversaw the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. But he still said, be careful about taking NATO too far east. So I think 2008 is, for me, in many ways, the key starting point. And then what happened after that, Putin had to step down from the presidency for a while under the Russian Constitution. Then he came back in 2012. He's been in power ever since. He'll probably be in power for 14 more years, people think, because he can sort of manipulate the Russian so-called democracy to his will. And, and so we created this situation where Russia saw us encroaching and Putin was feeling more powerful, more angry at the United States and the West. I'm not suggesting that Putin's view was defensible or correct, but it was predictable. And then we got into the Obama years. Obama didn't want to bring Ukraine into NATO, but, but he, um, he also didn't come up with an alternative idea. Uh, for, you know, a new security architecture for Eastern Europe, where maybe you would create some kind of neutral zone. And so we sort of sat on that problem. Then Trump came in. And of course, he was buddies with Putin. But he unfortunately didn't take advantage of that friendliness to stabilize this problem either. He just sort of ignored it. And but he fact, was he, he wasn't buddies with Putin. He thought he was buddies with Putin. Putin didn't think he was buddies with Trump. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Yeah, Putin's not really buddies with anybody, no. uh, except maybe Xi Jinping. Uh, and even there, I have my doubts, but we'll come back to that. He'll, sure. he'll be Xi Jinping's vassal state soon enough. <laughs> yeah, it could well be. So uh, so that's the basic trajectory. And then what happened in the last couple of years, Ukraine put into its constitution that they wanted to join NATO. So they, they brought the issue back to the fore. And then just last November, the United States and Ukraine signed a charter in which we again promoted the idea of Ukrainian membership in NATO. No schedule, no imminence to it, but it brought the issue back to a, you know, to a prominent place. And then Putin decided maybe this is the moment to just squash that idea with physical military brute force. And so that's what led to the war. Putin had, he thought, enough money that he could withstand sanctions. He, he had watched us react to his you know, seizure of Crimea that peninsula of Ukraine that sticks into the Black Sea back in 2014. He didn't think we had responded very forcefully, so he we thought didn't. he could get away with an even more brazen attempt. He had, he had developed this hatred for President Zelensky, which is sort of interesting because most of the rest of the world likes the guy, rightly so. But Putin decided he, this guy was a nemesis. And so all this came together and created this combination of anger in Putin's head and opportunity as he saw it, and he decided 
to make a move, which I did not think he would do. Just to be clear, I was wrong on that because I thought Putin would be smart enough to see that this war was going to be really tough. And unfortunately, he made the same kind of mistake we made in 2003 in invading, invading Iraq, thinking that the war was going to be easy, sort of believing too much our own theory of victory, uh, hoping too much that our new technologies would create a shock and awe that would end the war very fast. In a way, there's a lot of parallels uh, between what Putin hoped for in Ukraine and what we hoped for in Iraq. I'm not saying that President George Bush was a bad guy for invading Iraq. He was trying to get rid of Saddam Hussein. And even if it was done poorly, the motivation there was good. Putin's motivation is terrible and criminal. But, um, but I am saying in terms of the war plans and what people thought would happen, there is uh, almost a tragic parallel. So I'll leave it at that for my opening response. I would have something to say about, about Bush and the uh, Iraq war and uh, maybe, not, maybe not everything being level-headed and thought through and altruistic. Going back past actually 2008 is it am i dreaming this or at some point weren't we talking about russia becoming part of nato or russia was actually talking about becoming part of nato and the sticking point became they wanted to be invited not make an application of such right they were they wanted to be kind of courted to become part of nato you're probably right and you are certainly right that there was a little discussion on this in the late 90s it didn't get very far wasn't particularly serious. It was happening under, you know, the um, ever drunk Boris Yeltsin yeah. over in Moscow. <laughs> loved him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I loved him. He could barely and, uh, walk. <laughs> exactly. And his legs were fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but when, when, you know, when Putin replaced uh, Yeltsin, which was right at the new year right. in 2000, at that point, um, you know, I don't think Putin ever had any interest in joining NATO, but he did try to get along with President Bush. And you'll recall he that. He did. He went to Bush's ranch, and right. Bush said nice things about him. And, well, and then Putin was the first to call Bush after 9-11 to offer help and And they support. were helpful at 9-11 because terrorists were, were seeking refuge in Russia. And I guess it was Lavrov that made the famous quote, go fuck yourself, <laughs> uh, to them. I mean, I'm just quoting him, not trying to be, you know, salacial in any way, but the way Lavrov explains it, that's what he said to them. Uh, and and I appreciated that, but I re I remember the Bush Putin détente, for lack of a better, and they were I don't know I I seem to remember standing on a cliffside making you know these great remarks about each other. But Putin's goal at some point became this missile shield that he was very very concerned about. Bush and Cheney, well let's just say Cheney. We're like, well, it's nothing for you to worry about. It's, it's to protect us from Iran. And they said, well, if it's nothing to worry about, then why don't we run it together? And we just kind of pushed them aside. And I think that really angered him. That was the start of, okay, you know, we're not even considered at a peer level. And it's, and I guess another Lavrov statement would be like, it's one thing to be first among your peers. It's another thing to walk into a room and consider yourself peerless. And that was the effect that I guess we had in those days. Make sense? Yeah, I think you're right. And certainly, you know, we can debate as Americans which of those policies we got wrong and which we got right. But the Russians did see it the way you described. And not just Putin, a lot of, and not just his cronies like Lavrov, a lot of other Russians, very proud people. And it probably starts even sooner with the 1999 
uh, NATO war for Kosovo to support Kosovo's, you know, standing against Milosevic. Right. Where the Russians were friendly towards Milosevic and thought that what we had done, you know, which did not have a UN Security Council resolution to justify it, was therefore sort of outside of international law and was at the expense of one of their friends. Uh, you know, I don't think we should apologize for it, but that's no. the beginning of the problem for Russia. Then it got even worse because you're right about the ABM issue. But I think what Putin might have cared about even more was as we started to support democracy in places like Ukraine and Georgia and started to essentially oppose his cronies, the people that he wanted, the people you know, like Lukashenko in Belarus, who's still the president there, but um, more effectively in Georgia and Ukraine, where we supported democracy and new candidates. And then we started to talk about expansion of NATO into those spaces. And then the last piece of it is that we were, in Putin's mind, botching all of our Middle Eastern wars and showing that we were this big, bumbling, blumbering superpower that, you know, had a lot of power and didn't quite know what to do with it or how to use it correctly but was bent on sort of remaking the world in its own image under these American sacrosanct, you know, um, attitudes of spreading democracy and human rights. But as Putin saw it, we were just spreading American power and influence through force of arms, which probably gave him the idea that he could do a little bit of that too. He just thought he was smarter than we were and that he would do it better. And for a while, it looked like he might be right with his interventions in Crimea and Syria. But now he's made a mistake much worse than anything I think that we've committed in the last 20 years. Yeah, he, he definitely has. And, you know, we cannot export democracy. It's just not it's just not an export. People have to want it. They want it. They have to die for it. And then they can appreciate it. I've said many times on my show when we, you know, I have a, a Middle East background. When you go to a Middle Eastern country and they've been ruled by dictatorship or if it's a kingdom or whatever, and you topple this dictator and say, here's democracy, they're just like, well, we just wanted a better dictator. We, we, don't, we don't know what democracy is, and we don't want it. It was a big misunderstanding and miscalculus about the Middle East. But encroaching on Russia, I mean, it really, it really did happen in the 90s, right? In the early 2000s, when you're taking Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. I mean, these are countries right on their border that add, I don't know, 10,000 troops total to, to NATO strategically the only thing that you could really say is that they put us on the border of russia which i think bugged the hell out of him yeah you put it very well because you're right that first of all we weren't thinking in those kind of terms about strategic liability military defensibility you're right we bring in three countries that are far away into an alliance that is based on a mutual defense promise attack on one is an attack on all And now we've got to have the ability to get to those Baltic states. And I think their combined forces are something like 20 some thousand, but you're right. I mean, it's very small and they're very small countries, but they're exposed. I don't think, you know, I don't think Russia had any right to dominate them. And as you know, the Soviet Union forcibly annexed them in the beginning of World War II, and we never recognized that. So uh, I understand sort of the logic about spreading democracy and giving these countries their, their, their proper sovereign choices. But for us, it created a huge military liability. I mean, Poland is close to Russia, but at least it's a big country. It has strategic depth. It has ports in the Baltic Sea that are not right next to Russia. You know, Poland is probably defensible if we're part of it. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. The Baltics are pretty far. And at this point, I just wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed this week saying we should actually put U.S. forces in the Baltics and keep them there because I don't think we have any choice in the matter anymore. We can't undo what's done. 
But you're right, we made our lives a lot harder, uh, militarily at least, in a technical military sense, by bringing those countries into NATO. I mean, if you could just have a magic wand and, and wish and, and say, okay, every side has a perspective, even a murderous thug committing genocide, I mean, I dislike Putin immensely and, and have for a very long time and have said so publicly. So take nothing, as I say, as a defense of him, except to understand that how did we feel about the Cuban Missile Crisis? And, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't literally on our border. Close enough. And, and we've got these countries there. You know, a mutual security agreement we'd love to have, but we tried that with Ukraine, right? Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons, and both Russia and the United States said, this is a very good thing, and we will both protect you. That's not worked out so well for Ukraine. No. But, you know, I'd love to have something where, yeah, those, those Baltic states, Ukraine and Georgia, don't necessarily have to join NATO just for the symbolism of it although the Baltic states are already in, but they do have a mutual defense pact that, you know, maybe even China gets involved in, although that's, you know, that's going to be tricky. But as long as there are NATO countries, like, directly on Russia's border, I believe there's always going to be serious tension. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think we need to recognize that whatever security situation emerges from this conflict is is going to need improvement in the years and decades to come. And it may, w- may have to wait until Putin's out of the Kremlin. Yeah. It may have to wait for 2036. But uh, one thing we can do in the, you know, in the media world, in the think tank world, in the university world, is to almost start thinking about that now, partly as a signal to Russians that we don't consider them the enemy. Putin's right. the enemy. And it's pretty hard to use any other word besides that at this point, even though we're not fighting him militarily, and I don't think we should. But he is a complete nemesis and adversary but to the Russia, world to the world yeah, ex- exactly but russia uh can be a friend but it's going to take a while and it's going to take new leadership in moscow i think that's going to happen i think russia is going to be a friend again and i hope and i will be out there talking about this when that happens that we treat them better and more inclusive when they are friends again and that they're not marginalized and set aside because this is the kind of thing that can happen when uh, a country has seven or 8,000 nuclear weapons. That should have always been considered. And, and here we are now in a situation where it's not even unthinkable to think that as this war goes worse and worse for Russia, and who, they want to call us a paper tiger. I mean, Ukraine's kicking their butt. Sank a battleship. And it's not, yeah, that, that battleship being sunk yesterday was amazing. It's not unthinkable that a tactical nuke goes off. The nuclear scenarios are worth thinking about. Uh, you know, some of what Russia does with that issue is bluster and an attempt at coercion, trying to scare us. But some of it could happen, and especially, it's, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not. I don't think it's going to happen like in the context of the current Russia-Ukraine fight. But Russia has been saying for a long time that they would use nuclear weapons to defend what they consider their, you know, core security and. If NATO continues to supply weapons into Ukraine, as I know we will and should, at some point, Russia may try to attack those supply convoys, even when they're still on NATO territory. And then that raises the question of how do we respond? And then once you start that escalatory ladder, where does it stop? So that's where I could see a tactical nuke being used. I think in many ways, Putin would relish the opportunity 
to use a tactical nuke because he would know the effect it's going to have on Western psychology. It would scare the hell out of us. He knows full well he's not going to start shooting nukes at cities because we would shoot right back at him. And so he's not going to do that. But what he could do is use a high altitude nuclear explosion to try to sink a battleship in the Baltic Sea, get back at us or the Black Sea. Or he could do it in, let, let's say, rural terrain in eastern Poland if he can identify the location of a supply convoy that he can't otherwise strike effectively. And he's willing, by the way, if you, if you detonate the nuclear weapon high enough, it doesn't cause fallout. It just causes blast effect within a couple mile radius. And yeah. he may think that partly for the direct benefit that would give him, and also for the psychological chill that it would put throughout NATO. Uh, it might just shake things up enough that then we have to negotiate in a way that we're not willing to right now. So that's why that's where I think the tactical nuclear weapon uh, possibility exists. Or if Ukraine, uh, I speak to some Ukrainian military attaches and things of that nature, and there's talk about, hey, you know, we could we could incur into Russia. That could be a very big mistake. Yeah, that's a good point. And that definitely would push it. I mean, because like they have in their in their nuclear ethos, um, existential threat, whatever that means, that means whatever you want it to mean, by the way, folks, that's that's one of the reasons they could use a nuke is if they feel an existential threat. And yeah, Ukraine, Ukraine making an incursion into Russia to just put them back on their feet seems like a tactically good idea in a regular kind of scenario. But that could definitely escalate things to a tactical new level, I think. Yep. Yeah, great point. Modern warfare, because you're an expert on this. Do tanks suck or what? <laughs> well, <laughs> if, you use, if you use them the right way, they're still pretty good. But you don't, but you don't put them on, on an a road, road <laughs> with, with, with snow and mud on either side, meaning you can't get off the road. And, and certainly your supply vehicles can't get off the road. In the middle of winter or early spring, in the Russian Eurasian steppe of northern Ukraine. And if you do that, of course, and then you fail to use proper tactics, which would, which would require you to put foot soldiers on either side of those columns and try to identify the Ukrainians who are loitering and hiding and waiting to fire javelin and anti-tank weapons at your tanks and at your other vehicles. If you don't do that, then the Ukrainians have a field day because the column is localized, exposed, and essentially trapped. You know, if I was in one of those vehicles, not being a trained soldier myself, uh, just like most of the Russian conscripts who yeah. were told to drive in there, I would want to stay in the vehicle because it feels safer. If somebody's shooting at me, I want whatever protection I can have. And, you know, some kind of, even a truck feels better than being exposed, but that's wrong. It is. For the, for the overall formation, you got to have people on either side on foot, and the overall Fires. formation has a chance under those circumstances. The Russians chose the wrong time to attack. They forced themselves to stick on roads, and then they didn't use correct tactics moving down those roads. So multiple, multiple mistakes. Yeah, can you imagine what an A-10 Warthog would do to that column? <laughs> I mean, that's if they had any kind of Air Force, which it's amazing that they do have something of an air force still left uh you know going against far superior technological uh, planes yep their tactics have been great drawing them into missile fire that's only going to last for so long but yeah i feel like warfare has changed in such a way and then pivoting to china i mean are our aircraft carriers you know 
really the bully on the block anymore because they seem like they could be taken out. And now we're losing five, six, seven, eight thousand sailors, boom, at once. Yeah. Well, you're right. A carrier near the coast of China or, you know, near the coast of Russia is in a very bad place. And even if it has a lot of escort ships around it with good air defenses, the probabilities just work against you. You know, right. and I guess we're still trying to find out more about this uh, Russian battleship that was sunk and confirmation that this Neptune anti-ship missile was part of what caused the fire. But it might have just been one missile, maybe right. two. Who knows? But it didn't take a lot. And this is a flagship. So, this was not a, yeah. it wasn't an aircraft carrier, but it, it was a big hunk of metal that we have to keep in mind that at the end of the day, these, these are metal. Yeah, exactly. They have a hole in them. They'll sink. <laughs> right. So you, you can't put these things close to the shore of somebody with a lot of anti-ship missiles and multiple means of finding that ship. It's it, Now, it's one thing if you can blind all their radars and, you know, jam their satellites and uh, otherwise, you know, make it impossible for them to find you. But countries like China and Russia have multiple kinds of sensors and sure. multiple opportunities to find the ships. So, yeah, I think you're right to basically say let's say for a Taiwan Strait fight, uh, carriers can't get into that strait anymore. They might be able to help from 500 miles east. Even there, they got to worry Maybe. about submarines. Maybe. It's my view that China could end this war tomorrow. Uh, you know, I, Of course, Putin could end the war tomorrow. But w without China's support, and what we're not seeing in mainstream media, I think, enough, is the, the vitriol kind of display and attitude on mainstream news in China about this war related to NATO, related to Western aggression. It is it's nonstop support of what's happening with with Russia versus Ukraine. And is this just a setup for Taiwan? Well, there's a lot of debate about yeah what this means for Taiwan. Uh, let me say one thing on Chinese media. Uh, and I think you're more of a China specialist than I am, although I've certainly spent a good amount of time on the topic, but I don't speak uh, or understand Mandarin. So I, I don't know, except through reports, what they're saying to each other in Mandarin. I do know, I'll give China just a little bit of credit, not a lot, a little. I do know that their English language television, which I appear on fairly often, allows you to speak your mind as an American and to be very critical of Russia and um, and that goes out, you know, to a lot of the broader world under the name of Chinese global television. So in that sense, the Chinese are not doing Putin any propaganda favors. But I think you're right. Clearly, you're right that they're being way too friendly towards him. And uh, they're just they're not going to desert their friend in time of need because they figure they may may need him sometime. As for the Taiwan issue, there's two ways to read it. And I don't know which is more uh, is, is going to become more popular within China, and they push in opposite directions. One way to look at it, which is dangerous, is the United States has demonstrated it's not willing to fight in defense of a country or entity with which it doesn't have a firm alliance. So there's no alliance with Ukraine. We don't fight for them. There's no alliance with Taiwan, which we don't even recognize as a country. So that same logic would suggest to China, maybe if they attack Taiwan, we will not come to Taiwan's military defense. That could make them more likely to fight. On the other hand, they've seen that for all of the supposed softness of the West, we have been willing to incur higher gasoline prices and other risks to our economy to punish Russia 
for an action we consider unacceptable. Now, China, of course, has a much more globalized economy than Russia, but uh, China has to be asking itself, would the Americans and Europeans and Japanese and Koreans and Australians and a lot of others uh, maybe do the same kind of thing to us and really try to decouple these economies? It would be hard. We would have to be careful about it because there are some areas, as you well know, where we're very vulnerable and dependent on them. And you know, rare earth metals, uh, certain other commodities or intermediate goods and supply chains. And we really got to diversify our, we don't have to decouple from China right now, but we need to make sure we're not so vulnerable to any particular bottleneck or choke point that they could cut us off and bring us to our knees. So we got to diversify our supply chains and you know, do more with Mexico, do more with Colombia, do more with other countries around the world and never depend on China for more than, you know, let's say 30 to 70 percent of any particular crucial good. Yeah, I, I mean, the rare, rare earths where they where they have us the most. And it's not that we don't have rare earths here in the United States. We do. They're, you know, they're in your backyard, basically. It's, it's very toxic to mine. And we have something called the EPA. China does not. <laughs> they have a few people that, that could just die from toxic exposure and they can live with that. And they've cornered that market. We need to definitely get it back. But when you talk about us, you know, solidifying alliances with Central and South America, I mean, if you look at the last 10 years, China has, has made the most progress in solidifying alliances there. Yep. Coming across Africa and leapfrogging to South America so that they can mess with us in our hemisphere. And it's just great strategy. I, you know. I'm not appreciating it as much as I'm observing it. And we need to really shore up South America, but quick. Yep. You know, have you seen that as well? Totally agree. And it's, it's amazing how quickly we forget Latin America, except sort of as a source of our problems with, with drugs and with right. movements of people. Although these are also, you know, we, we forget that the movements of people also help us in many ways. And we also forget that our, our drugs uh, that we consume are in many ways, you know, what our import, their import is American guns. And that helps a lot of the cartels be better armed and more dangerous. So we need to be a little more fair to our neighbors and spend a little more time with them and, and on them, you know, and with them just building up relationships. Uh, and I think the economic sphere is the most important place we can yeah, do that. Making these countries livable. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of them have potential. You know, most most Latin American countries have around a ten thousand dollar per capita income. They, you know, most of their cities are pretty interesting to visit. They've got a lot of culture. They've got, um, you know, some things interesting going on with their economies. But a lot of them are sort of stuck in this so-called middle income trap, having a hard time building up industry, having a hard time fully educating their workforce. And I think some, you know, greater U.S. partnership could help them a lot. Well, resources. Look at Venezuela. I mean, they have more gold, more oil than anywhere else in in the world, but right it's on. mostly untapped. Yeah, yeah. They have less zoo animals now. <laughs> yes, they ate the. Giraffes. I mean, and I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was a great policy move on our part. Look, we do business with dictators. I mean, yeah. period. We we do yeah. Saudi Arabia. I mean, plenty of them. We do. Uh, you know, it's about you know helping try to make the quality of life in other countries better so that they're not walking 2,000 miles to our border and they're not accepting, you know, the Faustian bargain with China. I hope we're, we are looking at this 
not as the tactician that Putin thinks he is. He used to be a pretty decent tactician, but a terrible long-term strategist. But as, as a long-term strategy in China and shoring up our hemisphere while supporting Ukraine, are people at institutes talking about the security agreements going forward and maybe backing off NATO? Is that even a conversation that's happening as a, as a, a negotiation tactic? Well, not backing off NATO in the sense of weakening what already exists. I think all the, almost all the conversation, virtually all the conversation is in the other direction, strengthening NATO. Right. But, but I think the question, at the same time, people have acknowledged that Ukraine's not going to be in NATO. How fast the conventional wisdom changed, right? Because up until two months ago, we insisted as a matter of principle that Ukraine must retain that option. Right. And we were unwilling to reassess. And now, a few weeks into the war, we acknowledge the reality that there's no chance they ever will be in NATO. And we're prepared to, you know, see them give that, that, that option up in order to get some kind of a ceasefire someday, we hope. So I think it just goes to show that we were sort of falling on our sword over the wrong issue right. with this NATO expansion concept. Uh, so on that one, yes, there, there's been complete rethinking. But the points you were raising earlier, and I think very presciently with good historical memory, but also the right way of thinking about the future, we're going to have to think about how someday European security systems can include Russia, a post-Putin Russia, perhaps, because otherwise we don't have a way to really stabilize Europe long term uh, and get beyond this new Cold War. Right. And there's no land war in Asia to be won ever. <laughs> and it really isn't. No. People forget that Russia is a part of Asia. Uh, I'll tell you who doesn't forget that. China. They, yeah. they don't yeah. at all. So, look, I, I appreciate the intelligence you give us. Can you can you tell us here your, any thoughts? I don't want to put you on the spot, but what are we looking at in the next six months to two years? Uh, is this just going to be a grinding war uh, that goes on? Uh, or do we think we can get to some kind of settlement? I think there's a possibility of at least a ceasefire once Russia controls this infamous land corridor from Donbass over to Crimea, uh, because they've almost got it now. Right. And uh, even even people who have been skeptical about Russia's prowess militarily, uh, most of the people I know who look at this expect that Russia will complete the take taking of Mariupol, the key city on that Sea of Azov, which is sort of the intermediate point between eastern Ukraine. And Crimea. It allows them to hook up from Crimea to Donbass. It is that corridor, and it's all but done. Yeah. So once that is firmly in their hands, then the question for Putin becomes, how much more militarily ambitious does he want to be? Does he want to expand his control of Donbass, not just to the peace he's got now, but to the whole enchilada of those regions, which are you know three or four times larger than the part that the Russian separatists now control? Uh, and then does he want to even potentially resume the fight in Kiev. And in the summertime, it's easier to drive vehicles across open fields. So he may decide if he re-equips his forces that he has a chance to approach Kiev sort of from central Ukraine as opposed to from the north in Belarus. And it's possible he'll just double down on his original aspirations to drive Zelensky out and take a big part of that country. But it's also possible that he'll be content with the land corridor, at least for now, in the south and southeast over to Donbass, and that he would be prepared to negotiate, especially if he can get sanctions uh, eliminated. 
Now, obviously, none of us are going to want to do Putin a favor and quickly relieve sanctions. But if President Zelensky requests that we lift sanctions as part of the deal, then I think we'd be more interested. So that's going to shape up as the choice for Putin, I think, in the next uh, few weeks and months. And the choice for the West is to just give up on eastern Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's right. That's going to be the part. I think Americans, the Biden team, will be hesitant to impose that decision on Zelensky. But if Zelensky himself comes to that decision, uh, then I think that we ourselves would probably you know, be well advised to consider supporting whatever Ukraine can live with by way of territorial change. It's a terrible position to be in, but the alternative could be years of warfare. Right. And Zelensky will pose this as a referendum and to his people and probably take a vote where that's concerned and see what happens to the. To the point to where they can go somewhere and vote that isn't, you know, bombed out Beirut. Right. Exactly right. It's a sad, sad situation. Well, thank you. I mean, it's been illuminating. Uh, is, there, is there anything else you can add for us that uh, gives us just a little more intelligence about where we go from here? Well, I think that, you know, I, I like your global perspective, and I'll just make, it's always dangerous to make predictions, but I'll just say, my best guess is still that China's going to be cautious about Taiwan. I really think the Chinese are, you know, for all their autocratic ways, for all their problems, for all of our issues with them, they're, I think, a little more judicious in their strategy and their thinking. And of course, they don't have a history in modern times of doing a lot of fighting. So I'm not that worried about China drawing lessons from the Ukraine crisis that will lead it to quickly sort of preempt uh, Taiwan. On the other hand, Taiwan itself could make decisions that China then uses as pretext. So that's not out of the question. But overall, I think that the Taiwan situation will probably not erupt in warfare uh, in the foreseeable future. I'm a little more nervous about Korea, North Korea. Oh. And we didn't talk about that, but since you asked for parting yeah. advice or wisdom, keep, keep your eye on that. Because as we know, Kim Jong-un has just launched an ICBM, his fourth long-range missile test of his tenure. North Korea's fourth in its history. It hadn't done any since 2017. They had sort of settled into a moratorium during the Trump presidency. The Biden team doesn't have a creative North Korea policy yet. And I fear that the next North Korean step is going to be another nuclear test, which will be their seventh overall and also their first since 2017. And then we have the potential for another crisis on the Korean Peninsula. I'm not predicting war, uh, but I do think the dangers go up. I like to tell myself that China keeps a lid on that for the most part because that's nuclear war basically in China. I mean, the Korean Peninsula is just right there. You can't really be dropping bombs in North Korea without it affecting China and fallout, Beijing yeah. and fallout. Yeah, over to Beijing. I like to think that. But, yeah, the dude's flat out crazy. I mean... <laughs> hey, he's a great golfer. Well, it's a cult. I mean, so, like, when you when you get into this cult mentality... You know, generally people are drinking Kool-Aid and dying all over the place. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's the way it is. With Taiwan, look, you know, one thing I will say about President Xi, he says what he's going to do and he does what he says. And he says he wants Taiwan before the end of his tenure, which I guess gets re-upped here this fall. And I think that's, you know, a fate to complete. But... Barring any serious misstep, I think if Ukraine's taught him anything, it's that none of this is just going to be easy, where we're just going to throw some 
troop ships over there and people are just going to fall over and say, I, you know, I'm Chinese. Like Russia really was, I think people were saying Putin was really surprised that most Ukrainians weren't like, oh, thank you for coming here. Right. So I think that, I think you're right. That might make them back off a bit, but yeah, they're going there. Uh, and they want Taiwan Semiconductor if we're going to put any economics in it at all, because they are the foremost. And that is the one technology they're five years behind on. Good point. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Mike. You've been fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing for our country. Keep people informed. Write more articles and books. We're going to certainly continue to follow you. Is there any place in particular where you like people to follow you and get your news and and missives in real time? It's kind. I think the you know the Brookings website, Brookings.edu, and then you have the good fortune of reading colleagues who are smarter than I am as well. Uh, and then I, I'm on Twitter at Michael E. O'Hanlon. Michael E. O'Hanlon on Twitter. And we are Wolfpack Reports on Twitter. If you like our podcast, please give us a retweet, give us a like. If you don't like our podcast, well, then you're just, you know, anti-human. We don't care. <laughs> you should go away. <laughs> Thanks again, Mike, for taking your time. Gentlemen, thank you. Go Wolfpack. Appreciate it very much. Kitchen door.